You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, in Chalk Talk, Ashley looks past your Patrick's Mahomes and your Tom's Brady of Opera to spotlight <laughs> some of the linemen in the form and how those unsung heroes are the key to winning the game. And then a field report from the O Festival in Philadelphia and the return of Monday evening quarterback on Barry Kosky's Fiddler on the Roof, plus two-minute drill, has Spotify fouled out of the streaming game? Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and, yes, Spotify. Click follow <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. You're just going to hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxcore at gmail.com. Get your voice heard. Get the OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, just for sharing your own hot take. <laughs> Oliver Camacho, there he is. I'm holding up. I know you can't see it on the podcast. Uh, the Opera Philadelphia coaster. It's really nice. It's like a, a deep orange, like a like a red-orange color with a white logo. And, Wait, they uh, ripped us off on the coaster? I think so. It's almost <laughs> our, our logo colors, too. It's just That's know. crazy. It's yeah. got, like, beveled edges, and it's the same bear's orange. Man, that's, that's... Between criticizing Opera Philadelphia for their coaster and insulting Spotify, we are really biting the hands that feed us right now. We're in dangerous territory. <laughs> that's Weston Williams. Ashley Hardgrave, crying in your beer. Listen, I uh, we know, okay? Like, we just, we know. I'm going to let Weston start and then I'll finish. So, Weston, go ahead, my friend. Uh, yes, go ahead, uh, Weston. I, I, all I can say is roll. On over the Razorbacks, because that is what the Tide did this I weekend. Just, I just, like, it get a little older every time <laughs> I hear Weston say that. I really, really can't stand it. It's so frustrating because they're so good and they're so good all the time. This is why, and I maintain for a fan that wrote us a while back, you know, looking for some new fandom in the SEC. That's what's fun about Arkansas. They're up, they're down, they're left, they're right, they're all over the place. This wasn't their week, but stay tuned. Michigan was at Iowa on Saturday. They won, but that's not what is important. Get this. I haven't ever seen this before on, on TV, but when uh, it's a home game in Iowa, and oh, they I get to this. the end of the first quarter, the entire stadium, fans, players on both sides turn and they wave to the children's ward of the uh, children's hospital, which is built within sight of the football stadium. It is not melodramatic. It is not um, forced in any way. It is honest, sincere, and it will make you cry. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Folks, it is football season. And after yes. a team's win, fans will often celebrate the stars of the game, those principles in the win. Your quarterback, maybe sometimes your kicker. But we all know in football where games are really won and lost are in your offensive and your defensive lines, those secondary characters of a game. So to that end, we want to celebrate the linemen of an opera, whether they're scene stealing shows or just plainly awesome singing. We are going to walk you through some of our favorite secondary characters whose performances really made a production win. And I always know that I can count on Weston Williams <laughs> to make it weird and kick us off. Right Weston, away. take it away. Right away. Well, I, I was thinking about this, and it was kind of challenging for me because I, I feel like um, – uh, since I am the non-singer, uh, generally speaking, George notwithstanding, on oh, the that's podcast. that's kind of you. Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, t I tend not to listen so much to the performances as the uh, as the work itself. Um, so I was trying to think of like who I thought would be like a good like uh, a good moment like that in a recording I've heard. And then I thought, well, what if we really talk about someone we don't have an opportunity to, to talk about at all? 
So I ripped, flipped through my little Rolodex of slightly obscure opera figures, and I came up with Gerhard Stolze, who is uh, a really interesting singer. Um, first of all, he's a character tenor. He is not going to be singing a lot of your lead roles by design. And character singers in opera, they, they almost never get the spotlight, right? Usually if you have a character role, especially a character tenor role, it's usually like a vehicle for like a cameo of some over-the-hill singer. You know, I, you think of like um, the Emperor in Turandot where it's, you know, whatever local opera singer the the company can afford to pull in, you know, out of retirement, you know. <laughs> but Gerhard <laughs> Stolz was a career character tenor. That's all he did. Um he has a huge discography. It spans over 25 years, years, and he was on some really, really major recordings all over the place. I was kind of surprised um, when I was looking through my own collection of operas, and he just kept turning up, uh, which is not su too super surprising because he specialized in Wagner and post-Wagnerian music uh, because he had a very loud, piercing voice, which could really cut through the orchestra, which is something that, you know, you have to do even if you're not you know being full held in tenor about it um and it's not the kind of voice that gets you headliner status it's it's a very kind of harsh voice um but it's a very flexible voice it's very um uh, full of character you know character tenor um and uh, but let me give you a sense of like how important this guy was uh, as a character tenor um Obviously, probably the most important uh, recording of the ring cycle of all time, uh, the Sir George Schulte ring cycle, where in Siegfried, uh, Schulte uh, uh, played Mima, uh, which is probably the role he was most known for. And then like seven years later, um, uh, Herbert von Karajan is doing his ring cycle, probably the second most important ring cycle recording of all time. <laughs> Who does he go to? He goes to Gerhard Schulze again. <laughs> He can't right, catch Schultz. a break. And also, he actually played uh, Loga in uh, Rheingold uh, for the carry-on, which I think is interesting. Um, and this is an interesting role, too, uh, for someone to specialize in because it's a difficult, difficult thing to sing. He's right there next to a tenor who gets the spotlight because it's some of the most difficult tenor uh, music on an athletic level ever written because, you know, let's be honest, Wagner hated tenors. Um, but uh, but he has to be there. He has to be piercing over that same Wagnerian orchestra, too. And he has to and he's often out acting the Siegfried, if we're being honest. Um, and Stolze had it, had this down to a science. He did it all over the place. There are multiple recordings of him doing it. Um, and even though I hear, I see a lot of internet articles debating um, the best, you know, ring cycle or ring opera recording, uh, he almost always gets left out. And it's so sad because he really brings a lot to the role. He has a very distinctive way of portraying Mima as both comedic, conniving, scheming. There's the desperation in there. Um, but he even has like those sympathetic moments as well really right there next to the 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 big boy Siegfried voices, you know. Um, so I want to hear just a little clip um, uh, of him singing Mima in the carry-on Siegfried. Uh, this is the scene where um, Siegfried can now hear Mima's true intentions to kill him uh, and take the, the ring for himself. Uh, so let's just take a little listen to that. Dich und deine Art hast dich immer von Herzen. Aus Liebe erzog ich dich lästigen nicht. Dem Orte in Verfluss, dem Goldgehalt meine Mühe. Gibst du mir das Gut, will ich nun nicht. Ja, falsch! 
I love how how much he throws into this role. He is, uh, and and he's everywhere. Um, there's really something special about the way he is willing to like really go for like a sort of a hard, almost Sprechstimme kind of sound um, while still being very rhythmically precise and still finding those notes and still being very expressive with it. If you listen to a lot of Mimas, uh, you don't really get uh, a sense that they're really acting. They, they, they feel like they know that they're second fiddle to um, these big Wagnerian singers. But Stolze was not that. He has as, as big a discography working with people like Carrion, Schulte, uh, um, Kubelik, people like this um, on, on so many roles. He was the go-to guy for so long for these character tenor roles that he actually ended up getting character tenor lead roles written for him, which I think is <laughs> wild. And I just want to cheat and have a second little clip here just because I think it's neat. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Karl Orff's Oedipus der Tyrann, Oedipus the Tyrant, which is a fiendishly difficult piece that requires a lot of extended vocal technique, a very precise pitch. You're, he's always very exposed. It's very long. You have to be absolutely devoted to the text. Um, and you have to have absolute commitment to Orff unique late style. So I just want you to hear what he does with his voice that got him a lead role despite having a voice that should not get him a lead role. Take a listen. That's why he's the stealth MVP. Uh, listeners, you can't see this because it's an audio platform, but as Weston began to describe the second clip, his hands were clasped in front of him in total glee. He was Precious. in his element he, he so was, hard. Was, and I was, was drooling on his shirt. It was... It was such a preciously wonderful thing to see. Now, um, Oliver, which Gerhard Stoltz clip did you bring to talk about today? <laughs> I actually, I, I'm a fan of the character tenors and Gerhard Stoltz uh, definitely is one of the legends. Uh, but I actually want to talk about uh, another voice type, uh, which is the comic baritone, um, which we don't have a lot of. Um, but the comic baritone is mostly needed in bel canto operas and maybe to sing Papageno. Or, or if and, you need someone to make a bad joke on a podcast, that's who you go to. Right, right, right. So I want to bring us back to 2009. Um, it was an HD broadcast of Rossini's La Cenerentola. And it was the uh, a year after the Met debut of a... Uh, very alabaster white mezzo-soprano from Latvia named Elena Garancha <laughs> singing Angelina. She made her Met debut the year before in uh, Barber Seville, but in 2009, she was treated to an HD broadcast of her Angelina in Cenerentola. Two years before that, in 2007, a tenor, friend of the show, and uh, current possessor of the Fantasy Fockball uh, championship belt. Yeah. A guy named Larry Brownlee 
was already uh, on the rise as the bel canto tenor of the of his of his time, uh, which, if you remember, just in two thousand and I want to say two thousand and two, we were all crazy about Juan Diego Flores, and suddenly there was this new person on the scene, <laughs> Larry Brownlee. So this Cenerentola in two thousand and nine in HD was a real coming out for a lot of people who had not made it to the Met, but who were following along on the HD broadcast to see Larry Brownlee for the first time and to hear Alina Garancha for the first time and to see what they're like on stage. And sure enough, they delivered. We know that both of them, you know, Garancha in 2009 singing Rossini was spectacular. Mm. The voice was always very deluxe and creamy, and she was a beautiful woman, if a bit icy on stage. And... Um, you know, Larry Brownlee, what what can you say about him? I mean, like he was born to sing Rossini. I mean, literally, <laughs> he was born to sing Rossini. Like he has tone for days. He has high notes whenever he wants them. Always brilliant in the mask singing and floored as it gets. So we were there to see Alina Garancha and Larry Brownlee. But this cast had John Relier singing Alidoro, which is a thankless role. Um and he sang that aria La Nel Ciel or La Del Ciel so passionately. I remember being so moved um, in that in that scene as Cenerentola is being transformed into, uh, you know, by the mice or whatever, into a princess. And then we had veteran uh, Italian baritone um, Alessandro Corbelli as the father Don Magnifico. Mm. So this cast is getting stronger and stronger. But to me... <laughs> The person who made this one of the best performances of this opera I've ever seen was the Dandini, Simone Alberghini, uh, who made his own Met debut in 2005 and had already sung Dandini uh, in his Met debut, but here getting a chance to be in the HD broadcast. And both him and Corbelli are classic comic Italian baritones with impeccable timing. <laughs> And gesture and movement that seems to be informed by Commedia dell'arte. Uh, just so funny with the facial expressions, with the posture, with um, just the way they interact with people on stage. Like you could feel that they could improvise the whole show. They were so great. And I remember Albergini was very handsome, uh, dressed up as the prince in the first act of Cenerentola. And uh, yeah, he, to me, uh, because of the entire cast, but especially the lineman, Simone Albergini, uh, made this a very, very special performance. So let's listen to actually um, a performance of the aria, Come un ape nei giorni d'aprile, sung by Italian baritone Simone Albergini. Two thousand and nine, when I when I had black hair and I had hair, 
years now, ago. George, you know? I, I, I see that you do also, in fact, have hair. Uh, so what do you have for us today? <laughs> well, first of all, here's the thing. If you've listened to the show long enough, you know that when we do these types of segments, I always get attacked because, like, I haven't prepared anything. And <laughs> is that because I don't know anything about singers? Quite possibly. But I really did sit down and think about that. And I, I wanted to get a Benjamin Britten opera. And every Britten <laughs> show I came up with had such an ensemble to it. I couldn't really find one of these, you know offensive lineman mm, parts yeah. or one of these kind of like secondary safety roles right I, I, they're all like, linemen every no. one of them <laughs> yeah they no. all they all are um so I, I didn't come up with one but luckily <laughs> matt did and i love matt's and i'm gonna steal matt's uh he is gonna dip his toes into the rhine of weston williams and uh <laughs> he's he pitches grace bumbry's appearance as venus in the 1961 Bayreuth production of Tannhäuser. Mm. So, quick little recap on Tannhäuser. In the show, Venus is really kind of billed as the secondary female character, and she's really, the character is not really in the opera at all. She's at the beginning of Act One when Tannhäuser's living in sin with Venus at the creatively named Venusberg. <laughs> nice right. one. Um, and then... Uh, Tannhäuser invokes the name of the Virgin Mary, Venusberg, and Venus disappear. And three and a half hours later, <laughs> Venus returns at the very, very, very end of the opera to reiterate this curse. It's all very symbolic. It's Gesamtkunstwerk and Leitmotif and Schnitzel mit Bratkartoffeln. <laughs> and it's all the things that you want. And also, bitches never forget. That's just what I want you to learn from that. That's that's my tattoo, Ashley. So the, the, the singer is on stage for literally 15 minutes of a four-hour opera. And get this, the role is so short that when Birgit Nielsen recorded the opera, she actually just sang both Venus and Elizabeth yeah. as well. Just Might as well. You're already in the studio. You're there. But it really is. Two it's checks. really It's really one of the most <laughs> thrilling roles. And the history of this recording that Matt picked out, again, the, the 1961 live recording at Bayreuth, under the baton of Wolfgang Svalisch. This was extremely impactful when Grace Bunbury sang it. Obviously, it was brilliantly performed as a musician and artist. It was also ex extremely controversial for a Black singer to be cast and to be cast as Venus. But get this, Bunbury causes such a sensation that the ovation went on for apparently 30 minutes. Wow. <laughs> with 42 curtain calls. Like, I can't even count that high. <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to understand why it got to those numbers. Take a listen. just a little editor's note to everyone listening to the podcast i did have to cut out the 30 minutes of all of us applauding uh, <laughs> in order to keep this under an hour but uh just know it was there that was from the from Bayreuth in 1961 just to be clear and that was conducted by wolfgang Svalisch. so i i love this segment uh this is definitely something that like i have so many different examples i could bring in and frankly 
I'm probably going to try to lobby for us to turn this into a series because I think there's a lot of linemen. There's a lot of unsung heroes. We can spin it differently for every sports season. A different uh, Gerhard Stolze opera for every day of the week. Great. Weston will always bring the Stolze. <laughs> Get your um, napkin. Your Stolze <laughs> brings all the boys to the yard. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so when I started thinking about this, uh, I one of the well, I thought of a couple of different examples, but I'm going to end on a slightly more sentimental note. Um, I'm not usually the one that brings handle to the table to be like, guys, look at this. We often lean on Oliver for that. And in some cases, Weston, but this is a very sentimental memory for me, musically speaking. Um, I had seen Julio Cesare a couple of times. Julio Cesare at the Met in 2007 was my first Met production ever and when you yes yes and i i had gone you know i i went to new york i was so excited to get to see this and i had seen chasery so i was really ready for like the money notes the money arias from those you know people that you think about and Mm -hmm. then when i was walking out i was like we got to talk about the stepson my god that was just like (laughs) the only thing that i could really not stop talking about and so that person was alice coot playing sesto in mm, this 2007 production of, of Giulio cesare uh this was with ruth ann swenson as cleopatra patricia barden as cornelia harry bickett was at the harpsichord and conducting and that counter tenor who used to teach at university of michigan that we don't really talk about <laughs> anymore whose initials are schmavid schmaniels uh he was cesare and was i dare to say quite good uh but at any rate this was my first ever show at the met and so i actually came just in addition to going to see a show at the met my friend gerald thompson was going to be coming in as ptolemeo so i was actually going to see him and again when people ask you how a julio cesare was they come away talking about the cleopatra they come away talking about the cesare but when i got asked about it my fangirl line was you gotta look up this alice coot lady she's incredible (laughs) and like i knew who she was and i'd maybe heard like a recording of her at the time but her sesto in that particular production it laid me flat Mm. on the floor her acting was lovely she was so earnest it was it was it was strong it was sturdy it was it was thoughtful uh the acting was just really really incredible and her singing was like hot buttered rum it was just it was warm and it had depth it was just plain gorgeous and it has stayed with me quite literally for 15 years i still have like flashbacks to how moved Mm. i was by this performance now unfortunately we are stuck behind a paywall for the met recording of this but if you have the met ability to play recordings i encourage you to go to track 19 in their 2007 production and listen to her do a car spame but we have something that's around that same time period. This is her in 2006, or 2006 in Paris, I believe is what it is. Uh, but this is going to be the opening phrase of the gorgeous aria and the gorgeous has stayed with me for 15 years performance of Alice Coote. It's just, it's, it's a hug. It's a warm blanket. It's just, it's just a lot. And of course, like she's gone on to do other incredible things, but man, I will never forget Mm -hmm. how moved I was when I saw her do that. She never misses, honestly. (laughs) 
it was really that it, it it was well as you can see i'm like stumbling over my words all these years later it was it was just really really incredible so thanks you guys for letting us take a moment to talk about these uh these secondary characters and how they really bring it home perfect timing for football season thank you ashley pass or fail here's monday evening quarterback so we're recording on monday october 3rd and this morning i returned home from philadelphia after a very intense weekend of stuffed full of cheesesteaks oh, I, I on saturday alone i went to five events uh, i left oh my, God. I left oh God. my airbnb say you ate five cheesesteaks no, i oh left my, my airbnb done. Uh, to interview larry brownlee uh and then stayed in the city center until the first performance which was actually a movie of la voix humaine um, the Almodovar Lavois Women and the James Dara Lavois Women. Drink. Uh, yeah, then I went to, exactly, then I went to Keep go hear Jacks La, coming, Jimmy. LaTanya Moore sing uh, a recital at AVA. Then I went to um, The Raven, which yes. is the, the piece by um, Toshio Hosokawa. And then I went to Black Lodge. And then Frank, drag, Frank Luzzi dragged me to the late night snacks which is like the late night cabaret thing uh and there was even a peep show to enjoy so um did you get to see oh the liberty bell uh i didn't see any bells <laughs> no at the peep show never moving on uh, okay so on, on well friday done. i saw otello and on sunday i saw um goodbye mr chips uh, opera by gordon getty um, I also saw some other films. Um, it was a lot. It was a <laughs> lot. That's a I, lot, dude. I, I came away from it um, just thinking, oh, by the way, Larry Brownlee is incredible as Rodrigo in Otello. Aww, and I got okay. to interview him for, for um, WFMT, but uh, he really was the impetus for Opera Philadelphia staging Otello. Mm-hmm. He wanted to sing Rodrigo. Yeah. And so they had, they had to find another black tenor to sing Otello. And so Larry knew of one in South Africa. And so, you know, Larry is just a generous artist and um, he cares about this music and he knows it's his wheelhouse and he does it so well. And so why not like make it happen? So anyway, um, I came away from the festival thinking, what, where are we right now? It's 2022. And we got past those awful two years. We're still sort of coming out of them, but you know, there's, there was a reset for a lot of companies and uh, Opera Philadelphia is looking forward. They are definitely not uh, relying on old formulas and, um, you know, the same voices to keep what they've got going on. And it just made me think like what happens to those those audiences that Mm -hmm. have been supporting the opera, you know, for these decades and who are in that time in their life where they just want to go, and like you know hear beautiful singing and get a story and like be swept away and like you know um they're shuffled into Toshio Hosokawa's The Raven and into <laughs> David T Little's Black Lodge and um because they support Opera Philadelphia and maybe Philadelphia is just this magical city where all these like very progressive audiences live it is a city of brotherly love, you know? Yeah. And yeah. where people who are like are interested in prototype festival and all this stuff, like, and fringe festivals, they'll just come and support these things. But I really do wonder what is left for those traditional opera audiences with a company well, they can like always, They can always go over to the Met. It's not that far away. <laughs> true. True. <laughs> well, I, can I ask you, Oliver, um, what... In each of these events that you were at, what was the attendance like in terms of like percentages of the mm. house? Did they look full? Were they lean? Uh, well, the Raven um, was a limited seating capacity, so it was sold out. There were some no shows, but it was sold out. Right. Uh, but they were they put us in this place called the Miller Theater, which probably seats like seven hundred people. But mm. the audience was actually on stage with the musicians and the performers, so Ooh, they neat. cut uh. the audience. They cut the house size down to a fraction, you know. And right. they also like made us do like some pre-performance audience participation stuff, which that I was is my little... nightmare. How yeah. to do? <laughs> this is my nightmare too. I was given I, an instrument to play, so um... I, I, I don't know if that's the right metric necessarily to ask, right? Because if you 
did a show in a, in a space that seats 10 people, it'd be easy to, to yeah. sell it out, right? But it's like, were people moved? Were people into it? You know, I don't, and, and all I these honestly, different events, not just I breaking. honestly don't know. I yeah. don't know. And like, I feel like there's this, um, because it's new and because like it's so intimate and because like the creators are like right there yeah. and a lot of them have, you know, invited their friends or whatever. There's this sense of support. There's a sense of like, oh, we want, we want this to be successful, you know? Mm. And um, I wonder if it, it, it makes people less honest, you know? I mean, you cannot be all things to all people. And you you have to be pushing yeah. in, in in all these different directions. I mean, basically tonight. everything you're describing sounds like just a delight. Oh, for I me, was thinking so. the whole time like this is <laughs> Western festival. This. You Ugh. would have a great time. Like the Black Lodge uh, was oh, my perf- jam was yeah. performed by a like a punk rock band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like the lead singer is an incredible singer, and he has to sing this thing. I guess it's like 75 minutes long or 80 minutes long. It's it's a big sing. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's mic'd, but it's still, it's like with guitars and like percussion, it's like, it's loud, you know, mm-hmm. they were giving earplugs out, you know? Cool. And, um, I, I heard that if it's ever restaged, uh, or reproduced that they could divide his role up into three different Jeez. singers. Mm. That's, that's how yeah. comprehensive it is, you know? So, well, I mean, I'm, I can't help but think that like when we, when we have other cultural conversations about the state of the art and who we want to see in the boardrooms, who we want to see on the stage, who we want to see in these apprentice programs. There's this notion of progressivism and bringing more people in, you know, amending the way in which we keep these gates. And for me, that kind of goes hand in hand with progressivism of the actual art form itself. Mm. It doesn't mean we necessarily have to abandon you know, the, the more traditional things. And you're right. I think the question is what do, you know, great aunt Harold and, or great aunt Sally and great uncle Harold, like (laughs) what do they do if they don't want to sit through black lodge? I I think that's a valid question, but I also think we spend so much time talking about how we need to open our arms to a wider community. And these sort of more progressive sets of programming are part and parcel of doing that. Yeah, I think in a way, I, if if they had just not done the Rossini and done another centerpiece mm. opera that related to this other material, yes. it might yeah. have it might have felt more um, like of a of a piece yep. of a, of, you know, of a yep. whole, you know. But because that the Rossini out. is because the Rossini is so bel canto and so like obscurely bel canto with like very <laughs> yeah. bel canto singers, bel canto. You know, it's aggressively bel canto, exactly. yeah, obscenely offensively yeah. bel canto. <laughs> Meanwhile, anyway, so my question is, what is opera? And I'm going to yeah. pass over to George. Yeah, well, what is opera? Fiddler on the Roof is not an opera. <laughs> it, was, it was at Lyric Opera of Chicago. It closes later this week, um, just shortly after the podcast Friday. comes out. Uh, so I saw it. Oliver, you saw it. Mm-hmm. I saw the pre well. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is an interesting production. It's the 2017 production from the Komischer Oper in Berlin, directed by the Intendant Barry Kosky. It's done the rounds. It's beautifully designed. The first act is on a revolve. I don't know if you can do Fiddler without a revolve. And the mm. all the architecture is created with wardrobes, chest of drawers, and the the cool. doors. It all on looks sal- salvaged. The entire set design looks like. I think it is all salvaged. I, th- yeah. I seem to remember reading about that. I think it's literally salvaged. Not that you would know that by watching the production, but that's a, like a, a fun fact. And so all the doors of these wardrobes become the doors into the houses uh, within the shtetl itself. And then act two is just kind of this bare, snow-covered stage. There's not a ton of singing in this show. Like the, the way it's built is act one is heavy on the big numbers that we all know, act two less so. But even in this production, a lot of these singers, most of whom have done the show on Broadway, or in the famous Joel Grey production from a couple years ago, which was in Yiddish. Yep. Mm. Many are kind of Rex Harrison-ing this. And there's a <laughs> there's a fair amount of um, I guess to be kind, I would call it Sprechstimme. <laughs> and that was surprising. I you know, the orchestra has a wonderfully full sound on this. I wanted a little bit more melody from these singers. Acting-wise, it's great. Uh Stephen Skybell plays Tevia. He is a young Tevya, which makes actually total sense. I've always thought of Tevya as being 
in his 60s. Of course, in Act 2, they have the great number, you know, Do You Love Me? Uh, he and Golda, played by Debbie Gravitt, have been married 25 years. And if they got married at 20, they're probably in their mid-40s. And mm. so a young Tevye yeah. to me actually makes sense. Here's what I it don't does. get. This production has really been touted as being quite revolutionary and quite iconic and quite unusual. If you look at the production photos, I don't know how you could come to that conclusion. It's beautifully designed, costume, scenic, but apart from sort of a grand gesture with these wardrobes and an unusual choice for who plays the fiddler himself, which I'm not going to spoil, I don't get why so many people think this production is so atypical of what fiddler can be. Hmm. I saw it at the Prima and like I'm not a music theater person, so I already like come with my prejudice. Uh, I was very moved by um, is it called Sunrise Sunset? Yes. Is that the name of the song? It's yeah, that that like that killed me. Yeah. And then end of act one was devastating. Um, if yeah. you haven't seen it. The final image that Koski creates at the end of act yeah. one is, is beautifully. Yeah. yeah. But uh, my critique uh, is that. I felt like these performers somehow were not expecting to sing in a theater that seats 3,000 people. Totally agree, Oliver. 100%. <laughs> and they were just not, um, they weren't figuring out the balance between speaking on that stage and singing on that stage. And most operas don't ex ask the artist to speak on that stage, but they were miked. And I think just somehow they were there and they felt the orchestra and they felt the space and they got in their heads and it just became a little bit artificial because they couldn't think of the show as small anymore because it was such on a big scale, you know, and yeah. it, it affected the verisimilitude for me. But uh, Debbie Gravitt and Steven Skybell knocked out of the park. The, I thought the Golda actually stole the show. She was such a good singer. And she sang with a beautiful technique and it was super impressive. And Stephen Skybell, I'd never heard of him before, but great actor, very, very touching. If you have been to O Festival this year, or if you saw Fiddler, perhaps at Lyric or elsewhere, let us know. Send us that voice memo. Operaboxscoregmail.com. Get the merch. I just realized that O Festival presumably stands for Oliver Festival. Mm. <laughs> I think that's exactly what Lucy was thinking. Yeah. 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 TMD yeah. stands for two minute drill, and that's right. <laughs> this just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in O land this week. What a week at the Met, says New York Times critic and my boyfriend, Zachary Wolf. The company <laughs> opened the season with three bangers, Medea, Idomeneo, and Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. Three scores that have very little to do with one another. With care and passion, so Zach says. Three rave reviews from Zachary Wolf. Congrats, artists, crew, and Maria Manetti Shram GM. The Met has announced that it will live stream some operas directly into living rooms for customers who live far from the cinemas that carry their live in HD productions. The service, called The Met Live at Home, is part of the company's efforts to expand the audience for opera at a time when the institution is grappling with financial challenges. Maria Minetti Shrem General Manager Peter Gelb said, quote, We wanted to make our live performances available whether you reside in the mountains of Montana or on assignment in Antarctica. Money talks and renames job titles. Met Opera General Manager Peter Gelb will now be known as the Maria Manetti Shrem General Manager Peter Gelb. <laughs> Philanthropist and businesswoman Manetti Shrem, who is known for making Gucci a global brand, said, Peter has what is undoubtedly one of the most difficult jobs in all of the arts. I like people with bold points of view, and I've been impressed with his fearlessness as general manager, especially during the pandemic. Organizations can disappear in the blink of an eye, but he was able to lead effectively at a time of great uncertainty. Has anything improved since a 2014 study found that only 1.4% of symphonic instrumentalists in the U.S. were Black? It's unclear, according to the Black Orchestral Network, an advocacy organization for Black musicians. Quote, there's a real need to actually be transparent about what's happening in the industry in terms of Black people. Says co-founder Jennifer Arnold, 
we do not know how many black people are in orchestras. Ah, but we know of at least one black flute player making conservative Twitter furious. <laughs> An article in The Guardian notes that, quote, dedicated music listeners are looking for alternatives to streaming platforms like Spotify and, dare we say, returning to physical media. Nearly everyone interviewed for this article pointed out the need for systemic change across the music industry, from rethinking how royalties are paid by streaming services to expanding public funding for artists. Starbucks franchises make more space next to those gift cards for the newest Lizette Oropesa disc. Paris Olympic organizers have selected theater and opera director Thomas Jolie as their artistic director for the opening and closing ceremonies of the 2024 Games and the Paralympics. Paris organizing committee head Tony Estangue called Jolie's hire, quote, an ambitious choice that is consistent with our vision. Prior to Paris 2024, Jolie will stage Gounod's Romeo and Juliet for Paris Opera. Opera director Yuval Sharon has made the Time 100 Next list, which highlights 100 emerging leaders who are shaping the future of business, entertainment, politics, and more. Clearly, someone at Time Magazine loves backwards bohem. Oprah Frankfurt has been voted Opera House of the Year for the sixth time by Opernwelt Magazine. That's a German magazine. The mag credits Frankfurt as being innovative and courageously planning seasons with outstanding productions, like Christoph Loy's production of Rimsky-Korsakov's rarely performed The Night Before Christmas. Italian bass Ferruccio Forlanetto was presented with the San Francisco Opera Medal following his performance in SF's Eugene Onegin. Addressing the audience, Forlanetto said, I am extremely touched and proud to receive this honor from the opera house where I started my international career quite a while ago. But this is, once more, proof that this profession of mine has been and still is the most amazing and unique privilege. And on this day, October 3rd in 1705, it was the first performance of Giovanni Paisiello's Il Gran Cid. In 1786, Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf betrug durch Auberglauben oder die Schätzgräber premiered probably Bless somewhere you. in Germany. Yes, in 1804, <laughs> it was the first performance of Ferdinando Pérez Leonora the same subject matter which was source material for Fidelio. In 1834, Czech composer Blodek Willem was born. In 1857, Leo Dulib's Maître Riffard had its premiere. Another premiere happened in 1883 on this day, Johann Strauss Jr.'s A Night in Vienna, an operetta. One for our friend George in 1888, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Yeoman of the Guard had its premiere. In 1936, oh, we say happy birthday to Steve Reich, the American composer, and happy birthday to the legendary Italian bass Ruggero Remondi, born this day, October 3rd, 1941. And lastly, in 1978, yours truly, George Cedarquist, born. Oh, it's your birthday! Happy, Happy birthday, birthday, George! In La Jolla, California. That's your two-minute drill. We should have listened to you singing Amal in the Night Visitors instead of this clip. <laughs> oh, man. That was Ruggiero Remondi and the late Teresa Berganza in the famous 1979 Joseph Lozzi film, which was being offered at Opera Festival, uh, at O Festival. Very this nice. Year. Very nice. Uh, from Don Giovanni. So we are on Spotify. It is true. <laughs> should should we be on Spotify? Is are people not going to use Spotify anymore? Well, how much what are we getting paid to be on Spotify? Like not, very, a, not very much. A fraction of a fraction of a penny every time somebody downloads. Yeah, so exactly. I don't think we get. There's no remuneration for podcasters, is there? Unless you're Joe Rogan. If you're Joe Rogan, <laughs> a of all, a of all. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah. The point being that um, we you know we're I think reaching a point with everything available all the time that right. people are feeling overwhelmed and they're feeling disconnected from their music. Yeah. 
And I, I guess I should be glad that I grew up in a time when I had to like, you know, work four hours at Burger King so that I could go to Rose Records and buy, buy a nice wax cylinder. No. (laughs) And we liked it. I think the first, I think the first CD that I bought might've been Tracy Chapman's debut album. Uh, But I bought that thing with that weird plastic thing on it that made it long, made it as long as a record so that you could browse the the West. You know what I'm talking about, but you know, (laughs) taking that on the bus, like, you know, removing the plastic and like i had my disc man with me and like listening to it like on the bus and uh really feeling Until you conne- hit a bump and then it would skip yeah but really mm-hmm. feeling connected to the media and yeah. having made an investment in it yeah. and listening to it over and over again so you knew all of the songs not just fast car but like talking about a revolution and uh, all the other ones that were on there, like every track and you memorized the order of them you knew the key because you listened yep. to it in continuity and now you kids, Weston and Matt, you know, you guys have everything available to you all the time and yeah, you yeah. no longer care about anything, you know? Yeah, I think I think it all started to go downhill when you stopped having to hand crank the Victrola and then you just didn't really, you just didn't want to work for it anymore, you know? Spotify's never going to go away because it's too easy, right? Like, Weston, well, man, your clips from the first segment on the show were from Spotify, bro. Well, <laughs> true. Well, here's the thing, though, and I, I think this, I actually have kind of the opposite problem with Spotify personally, because obviously for musicians, Spotify streaming services can can be a real problem, right? Because you really do get so, so little per stream, you know? Um, and I think it's interesting because I feel like it's only been recently since the user experience has started to be interrogated somewhat. Um, and I think we're starting to see some of the consequences of, you know, uh, you know, region locking in particular is one that befuddles me a lot where, you know, I, I really want to listen to something uh, uh, streamed or even or even just download it digitally. And it's not available in America because of some little coffee uh, copyright snafu, you know, uh, whereas I could go online, buy a CD from eBay. Um, as long as it's not in an active war zone, I can get it within a couple weeks, you know. Um, and I do think that there is something to um to the ease of accessibility of of those things, but it does lead to, I think, a concentration of power in labels and in streaming services who could pull a song whenever they want to. Um, I have a recording, uh, I believe it's uh, the Kavina recording of one of the Monteverdi um, madrigal collections. I think it's like a Libro Four or whatever. Yeah, that's Love and Exiana you're talking about. That's that's what I'm. Thank you. Um, uh, that one I I recorded way back in the day before I knew much about Monteverdi. Uh, I encountered Lamento della Ninfa for the first time, and I thought it was I thought it was great, and I wanted to download it. It was one of the first downloads I ever did from iTunes, and I still have it. Uh, but the other, but a few weeks ago, I was like, I should get the rest of that album. I really listened to this one a lot. I really like it. I want to hear what the rest of it is. I'm, I'm more familiar with La Vexiana, you know. Um, and I went back, and for some reason, that album is no longer available digitally. Uh, yeah, serves you right. Yeah, on the on the <laughs> platforms I use. And then this is the problem, right? Because once you have like a big, you know, multinational. Uh, 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 art form like opera, it's very inconvenient and it's not designed um, to be convenient for that kind of listening. I will say I was, you know, you joke, Oliver, but I was a very, very late adopter to anything digital um, beyond CDs because, uh, I mean, I remember, you know, the first MP3 players all my friends were getting that were like, oh, it's so great because it shuffles automatically. And I'm like, why would I ever want that? Well, why would yeah. I'm listening I don't to want opera. random. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I would be really interested to hear what your guys' like streaming habits are even. I wonder if the love of opera might make us a little bit different from the average audio consumer. Um, and I, that's just a kind of an open question for you guys. I definitely want to answer that, but I want to make one more point before we actually get into answering your question, which is one of the things that makes streaming services in general so user-friendly in this moment of instant gratification that we all have as consumers is the scientification of music. Mm, Uh, there There are ways in which we can search through music as if they are data points, mm. basically, in a way that we never could before. For example, on Spotify, 
or I, it may be some other platforms as well. If if you're a runner, for example, you can look for specific songs that are so many beats per minute so that you can like run to the beat and keep pace. Right, yeah. The, the intelligence that the the digital background of all of this music has in terms of being able to predict for you if you like this song if you put a little green heart next to it it's going to offer you seven more songs that have some of those hallmarks that even you might not know or the thing that you like about this song or the piece it works with classical music as well you definitely hear more of it in pop music but you can do the same thing with oratorio you can do it with chamber music mm. you can do it with opera you can say you like one opera aria and it will play you others so the way that artists are paid for streaming services blows and it's got to get better. I don't know if it ever will, yeah. but I think that ease of using, like getting to the actual data points of music, I think is one of the things that is both the blessing of this and the total, total curse of so this. Some people might describe me as controlling. <laughs> uh, so um, I don't know. Like, like some people, <laughs> we mean most people. I don't like the randomness of, uh, like artist radios or radio stations built on songs. Um, if I use Spotify, I will listen to an entire album or I will choose an artist and listen to their all of their stuff. Or um, I will listen to one piece performed by everybody and like I will sort by song. But um, yeah, I, I otherwise, if I want randomness, I'll actually tune into the radio because I'd right, rather have yeah. somebody tell me what I'm listening to than have it just pop up and like have to like get up and sk and and press advanced to skip to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, thing I'll also say I'll also say that, you know, there's not an algorithm made yet that has fully figured out my musical preferences. I don't necessarily blame the algorithm. I feel like a lot of people might have that trouble. <laughs> um, but uh, they're still working at it on at Spotify headquarters. Certainly one streaming habit that I'm not going to pick up is the Met live at home thing should that be live at home Was that's, there not, ever for, more that's not for us messaging that's not like, for people it, who live should, in antarctica you should live or whatever, at home. So. yeah i i i i don't understand you live in the big Although, city i i will say for our uh our shrem general manager uh that quote that he put in there about montana i think that might have been calculated montana is a weirdly expensive place to live he just so wanted I think a to find donors in the come on don't give me this so george um how come uh, Opernwelt keeps giving the best opera house of the year <laughs> to Opera Frankfurt. That'd be like Opera News giving an award to the Met. <laughs> yeah, first of all, Opernwelt magazine is a is a really great magazine. If, if you uh, speak it German, is good. yeah, you got to speak German though. Yeah, um, <laughs> drink. It's it is. Listen, Frankfurt <laughs> is such drinking. a drinking. First of all, it's a gorgeous opera house. It has this gorgeous blue color on the inside, on the seats, and in the walls. It's sort of classic stacked horseshoes but it's the acoustics are amazing the stage does everything you want the the key to frankfurt is the intendant so bernd lerbe who took over frankfurt in 2002 only for the opera house to win that award in 2003 is utterly phenomenal the man has developed a young artist program he has productions which are tasteful which pushed the boundaries of opera in every single direction and because frankfurt is the financial center of germany and quite an international center within that country you have a lot of money going into that opera house mm. you have a mm -hmm. lot of different tastes and proclivities that is why i think it's winning this award again and again and as a result uh Loeb's contract is, has been extended well, it, it's through next year. Will it be extended again? 20 years is a long time. I don't know who's going to fill those suede shoes. Well, Loba's going to have a run for his money when Jolie gets his hand in the Olympics, which is going to be so <laughs> exciting. I can't wait for, okay, first of all, I, there's very little in life I love more than an opening ceremonies for an Olympic Games. They're just, I mean, if you're somebody who loves the visual spectacle of life theater and opera, yeah. if you are not on the opening ceremonies train, get the F on board. They are yeah. always yeah. amazing. <laughs> the NBC coverage with the voiceovers giving you like audio pop-up video that talks about the different uh, the different cultural significances. It's going to be gorgeous. So for Jolie, I imagine it's going to be a lot of like stark black stages with some lasers. There's probably going to be some like black raven themes Amazing. Involved with like a neon they could, they could really go full Reggie Theater with it and make it really uncomfortable for everybody. 
I'm sure they will. And then there's going to be like a weird <laughs> little children's choir and a cartoon character coming out with like the Latvian snowboarder. Like yeah. something's going to happen. But it's going to be amazing. <laughs> the creative brief for the Olympics, Summer Olympics opening ceremony is such a great one. And to tie this in to the Yuval Sharon story, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, move on to, to the end of the show. Yuval Sharon, of course, mentioned in Time Magazine, this is great for opera. This is great for him to yeah. put our art form into those pages. Mark my words, he will direct the opening ceremonies in Los Angeles in 2028. I will put money <gasps> on that. Unless they go for oh. someone from Hollywood because mm -hmm. it's in LA, he would be a brilliant choice for that. Let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call is how we're going to take you to wherever you're going next. Oliver Camacho. Good call, I guess, is going to be for Larry Brownlee for his performance uh, in this show in, in Otello and for making Otello happen. It's an opera that I've known about for a long time. I've listened to the recording and I finally got to see it and I'm better for it. Um, I think he gave a fantastic performance and uh, I feel like I understand him more now as an artist. Weston Williams still just jazzed about Gerhard Stolze. He can't even speak oh, at this well, point. Well, I'm also jazzed about Lizzo. I do want to put that in there because <laughs> we, we did reference it earlier. But I do want to uh, talk a little bit just because uh, um, if, if you somehow don't know, because it blew up the entire Internet, um, uh, Lizzo was uh, toured the Library of Congress and played various historical flutes, uh, especially including uh, the solid crystal flute that once belonged to James Madison. Um, uh, noted slave owner, James noted Madison. Noted slave owner, James Madison. Uh, and uh, I will say, first of all, remarkable she got a tone out of that thing. Crystal flutes are notoriously atrocious for uh, actual music making, which is why it hasn't been played since, I think, James Madison's death. Um, so the symbolic uh, 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 power of a black woman uh, who is uh, as famous and well-known as Lizzo um, uh, was really amazing. Of course, there was the stupid, uh, you know, uh, racist backlash. Um, but I also think it was really neat to, like, introduce a lot of people to a, um, a lot of instrument history, a lot of history of what uh, what. A crystal flute even is it, that didn't know that was possible like the historical significance like even even that I, I saw a bunch of people talking about how they didn't even know that the library of congress had things in there that weren't books you know i think it was it was a, a great moment symbolically for history and it was a great moment to like learn about history and really enjoy it i thought it was really cool ashley hardgrave I was in Minneapolis this last week and uh i i got to do two things that aren't necessarily considered operatic but had very many operatic elements to them uh the first was i got to finally visit paisley park which is the home in the recording studio of prince uh it is i cannot recommend it enough i can't wait to go back and do it again he was such an impactful figure on 20th century music it was very emotional i cried three times um but <laughs> Just looking at the way that he had such an influence over all elements of his production, the costume design, the custom shoes, the A way little he Gesamtkunstwerk, if you will. Incredible, yeah, a thousand percent. The way he layered in these visual images, everything was about telling the story. All of the different layerings acoustically of the different, you know, instruments, many of which he played on the recordings. He was such a virtuoso on multiple instruments. It was really an emotional and beautifully operatic production to just take in. So if you're ever in Minneapolis, I encourage you to check out Paisley Park. You will not forget it. If I'm going, I'll take you. It'll be great. Uh, and then the second thing was I, uh, the opera wasn't actually in season yet. Uh, so I chose to take in a show at the Guthrie, which is, you know, certainly famous in and of itself, uh, when it comes to the theater scene, I got to see a really incredible play, uh, that's a couple of years old. I think it first premiered in 2015. It's called Viet Gone. And it is, uh, it is set, uh, in Saigon and in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, which was a refugee place where a lot of people were taken out of South Vietnam during the war. Uh, it is not a war play. It 
it is actually kind of a buddy comedy coming of age road trip <laughs> love story. Uh, but here's where the operatic elements come in. You know where, you know, in, in operas, the action moves along, dialogue, 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 and then sort of a moment in time freezes and the aria is where we spend a few minutes really focusing on the emotion that's happening for that character in that moment. They did the same thing with hip hop. It was crazy. It was like spoken dialogue, spoken dialogue. And then there was a moment where one of the central characters was having a series of very heightened, you know, uh, victory, you know, thrill of victory, agony of defeat. And then all of a sudden there was a beat and a tech theater person handed them a cordless mic and then they rapped about it. It sounds like it wouldn't work, but it did. It was brilliant <laughs> and it was operatic and the writing is funny and smart. And I was... I was not expecting to be so moved and I wasn't expecting a play to have such an operatic feel to it, but it really did. Uh, it runs through October the 10th at the Guthrie theater in Minneapolis. Uh, if you have a chance, see Viet Gone, you won't forget it. My good call, the Chicago Red Stars clinched a spot in the National Women's Soccer League playoffs. They will have another round later in October. Bad call, an independent investigation into player abuse in women's professional oh, soccer. No. Found a long list of failures by the NWSL coaches and executives and the United States Soccer Federation. Oh, Yikes. no. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Get the merch. Our Encoda digital sheet music creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our James Dara audio editor is Weston Williams. Ooh. For your Boston Early Music Festival co-host, Ashley Hardgrave. I'm the Richard Doily Cart host and producer, George Cedarquist, <laughs> asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you wait for Grace Bunbury to finish bowing. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more opera casingles. Join us.